Amen. Well, turn to page 26 on your notes, please. I've got a, a, quite a bit of ground to cover because I'm inserting an extra 30 pages of notes. <laughs> and after the break, we will give them to you. And that, that session will, obviously, I'm not going to cover all the detail, but I just felt it was absolutely necessary that we spent at least one session on the, the role of the prophetic. So I want to just try and truncate things a bit so that we end up in the right place. This, this afternoon, Eileen is going to be ministering and she will be ministering on the church as the bride of Christ. And so that's going to be a great time and uh, I, I'm looking forward to it immensely. So come now to page 26 of your notes. And I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the, what I call and others call the Ephesian 4.11 ministries. Some people call them the fivefold ministries. Some people call them the Ascension Gift Ministries, but they're just different ways of talking about the same thing. We need to make quite clear that uh, these are not the same as elders and officers in the local church, where many people are confused about that. So I want us just to track a few things. I want you to turn with me to uh, the prophetic book of Zechariah. And as I'm sure you know, that when they began to build the temple. Zerubbabel is the great type of the apostolic leader. And then after this 14 years of lethargy and, and, and having lost their way and saying to themselves, it's not time yet to do this. Then God comes to the prophet Haggai and says, look, you guys, stop fiddling around with your own little houses while my house is lying waste. And the house that we've seen so clearly is the whole universal body of Christ. You cannot see it any other way. It's the church of the city at least. And he, he, he had this contention with them that they were fiddling around with their own things and putting the touching details to their own comfortable little nest, but they were leaving his house at foundation level and, and still in ruins. And that was a big issue with God. And God urges them four times in the book of Haggai, he says, now stop and consider your ways. And I think that's something that every pastor of a local church ought to do, is to stop and consider his ways and whether he's really in line with God or whether he's just following a tradition or a, a methodology which is not really accomplishing God's purpose. It's something that we need to do. And then in the middle of all that, God then declares that the time has come to shake all nations. That's in Haggai chapter 2. And he tells us that the purpose of shaking all nations is not the, the shaking of judgment, it's the shaking of redemption. And he says that I will shake all nations and the purpose is that they will come to the desire of all nations, which is one of the great names of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's several times called the desire of all nations. He also tells us in the same breath that all the gold and silver is his. And that that's in the context of shaking all nations and compelling them to come to the desire of all nations. Now we need to see that because one of the things I need, think you need to pray for is that the financial resources to those that oppose the kingdom are cut off. It's a very necessary prayer. Amen? 
and they should be re redirected so there's never any shortage of money for the building of the kingdom of God. Now that's a very important prayer we need to pray. That there's a realignment of the worldly resources so they're available to the kingdom rather than available to those that oppose the kingdom. Amen? You get very enthusiastic with me. Amen. Yes, <laughs> I'm excited about yes, these things. Now, contemporary, and Haggai is prophesying somewhat into the future, but very much to the present day situation, diagnosing what's wrong and what needs to happen to get the job done. And his prophecies are so effective that he prophesies five times in three, three and a half months. And as a result, there's a new spirit on the Zerubbabel, there's a new spirit on the religious leaders, and there's a new spirit upon the people and they begin to work. Now, it didn't fall out of the sky in their lap. They now had a spirit to work with God to make it happen. Hello. And that's what I feel I want to cry for. I want to cry for a, a new spirit to work, to come upon God's people, that, that seeing this come to completion is a passion with them, as it is with God. And in three and a half months, the whole situation, the whole, no, let, let me re rephrase that. The situation didn't change. In fact, the situation had got worse. But the attitude of the people so changed and the spirit upon them so changed that in spite of the increased difficulties, they went to work and in four years, they'd completed what they were looking at for 14 years saying that it couldn't be done. Now, let's cry out that that will happen to our cities and happen to our city leaders because that's my longing. I mean... San Antonio here, most of the city leaders, for example, are not here in this conference and, and I want to scream with frustration because it's not important to them. There are other things that are much higher on their priority and now I can't do anything by nagging but I can do something by praying. Amen? Amen. And I'm praying that spirit that's I'm calling it the de demonic spirit of lethargy and being preoccupied with other things that will be removed until we get focused the same way that God is focused. Now contemporary with Haggai was Zechariah. He was prophesying at the same time, but his perspective was different. He was looking at the temple that Zerubbabel was now beginning to build, but he was seeing it as an allegory and a type of what God was going to do in the spirit realm at the end of the age. I can't develop it, it'll take far too long, but it, you can see that like in chapter one, something happens, chapter two, something happens, chapter three, we then take a good look at the high priest who is actually Melchizedek, his name is Jesus. And it's a picture of this corporate high priesthood which we, we are called and told that we are with Jesus as the head and we the church are the body and we're told that this this body is tragically wearing filthy clothes and as a result of that the devil can stand before it and resist it. Now the reason for its powerlessness is the uncleanness of that high priesthood and so there's a powerful word which comes that the high priesthood's got to be cleaned up, that the robes have got to be changed and then God promises in the end, uh, he says, if you, will, if you will keep my commandments and walk in my ways, then you will be a judge and a ruler. You can, you can rule the law courts, you can, you, can, you can rule over the political situation and you be, can become the, the authority that I've called you to be. 
You go on into chapter 6, which I've not, obviously not time. I'm just giving you a quick skim of these things. And there again, he, he promises all authority. And he says that the authority of the political throne and the authority of the religious leaders, that they're going to become one. And this separation of church and state is going to disappear completely. It's going to be seen that it's one kingdom. It's, it's, it's one God overall. And everybody is part of that uh, of rulership, part of that kingdom, and under the authority of God, and we'll we'll see that God's as important in the in the political elections as He is in the church. Amen. Now He's promised He's going to do that, and we're going to see these things happen. But we have to come back now to chapter one, and let's just look at the end of chapter one of Zechariah. And God is already promising here with great zeal. Again, here comes this word, verse 14. I'm, I'm zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. Now that's the heart of our God. It's not number 53 on an agenda of other important things. It's the passion of his heart. Amen? And then he prophesies the rebuilding of the city and the rebuilding of Zion. And although that was literally fulfilled in the days of Zechariah, Zechariah saw the great spiritual fulfillment at the end of the age. And we need to, that's why it's in our Bible, not to teach us history, but to teach us how relevant it is for the day we live in today. Now come down to verse 18. Then I raised my eyes and looked. And there were four horns. The word horn could be translated by the word kingdom, by the word rulership, or by the word, what's the third word? The word power. That's, it's, I saw four powers. I saw four rulerships. I saw four kingdoms which had been so powerful that they had torn God's people to shreds and, 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 and ripped them apart. And then I saw four horns that had scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. In other words, if you take this in terms of the church, then the church is splintered into a thousand people, pieces, instead of being one body. And that's been a demonic activity. It's been a demonic strategy to make the church impotent. Then the Lord showed me, verse 30, four craftsmen. Now here's where we're coming. You see, God's answer to the four horns. If you go right through the, the, the Old Testament, you, as I've said again, several times already, you'll find this number four representing the demonic powers that are opposed to the kingdom of God is repeated again and again in many different scriptures. Here it's called the four horns, the four kingdoms, the four, the four powers, the four authorities, the four rulerships. And the devil knows all about government and he's established his own diabolical government to withstand and oppose the, the government and the kingdom of God. And there appear to be four centers and foci of this, which I got some tapes on this. I haven't time to teach that this morning. But I want to look at this verse here. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. Or if you like, skilled workmen wouldn't be a bad translation of that. They are workmen, but they have, they have skills and expertise to put to work in order to build something. Four skilled builds, builders wouldn't be a bad term. Verse 21. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could lift up his head. But the craftsmen are coming. Now listen to what the craftsmen are going to do. The craftsmen are coming to terrify them and to cast 
out the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. In other words, there's a power in these craftsmen to remove demonic principalities which are ruling over nations. Amen? Now we need to know what they are. And they have such authority that they terrify the great horns. And the thing that scares them is, if look out, the craftsmen are coming. They want to say, if they come, ah, we're finished. We can't oppose them. We can't stop them. Now, I want you to see in a few moments that these four craftsmen are the Ephesian four ministries that are referred to again and again in the New Testament. They are the skilled builders. You say, well, I thought it was five. Well, yes, it is. In fact, there's been arguments for centuries. Is it four or five? The answer is yes. <laughs> and I wanted to show you this quickly. It's five men or women, five people, but there are actually four building skills. See, the apostolic ministry is not a building skill. The apostolic ministry is a governmental ability to put the building skills to work in a proper way. So the four building skills are the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher. And if you look at my hand, this is the building hand of God. And the, the, the thumb can touch all four fingers. The thumb is like the apostle. And then you have prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. Now, if you just think of a natural illustration... If you're going to, say, build a, 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 build a city centre or even build a whole town or build a, a building complex, you basically need, in the old days when you built with stone instead of wood, you built to last, instead of building little huts, cardboard huts that get blown away, then you need a stonemason whose job is to set up the basic structure. Then you need a plumber to do all the pipe work, and all the other things that plumbers do, you need an electrician. To do all the electrical work, you need a carpenter. Now with those four building skills, under the right kind of supervision, with the right kind of direction, they can basically build anything. Amen? But just imagine someone who's a very skilled um, electrician, but at the same time, he has an ability to look at the architect's plans and he understands them perfectly. He has the skills of leadership so he can put a lot of men to work together as a team to get the job done. So they take him off the job and he's no longer doing his electrical work. He's now become the, the, the site foreman. He's in charge of the whole building project and he has got these three abilities, he can read the plans and understand exactly what the architect wants done. He, can, he has skills of administration and skills of leadership, so he can take a whole team of craftsmen with all kinds of skills and abilities, and he can gainfully put them all to work at the same time, working in the right way, in the, uh, in the right place, in, in the right way, to get the whole thing built. Now, what I've just described is an apostle. Apostle is someone who comes out of one of those building skills, but he's got these extra abilities. He's got that ability to see the plan of God and knows what God wants to build. He's got leadership skills which attract other leaders, and he can organize them, gather them, and then supervise them and put them to work so they're building together as a team, which will then bring the whole building up. Have you got the picture? Now, these are the four craftsmen, which are the four 
building skills, but there are five men and or women who are then put to work as a team to make the thing happen. And it's that which terrifies the strong horns. While there's no apostolic leadership, while there's no organized and properly directed ministry of the Ephesians 4.11 ministries, there's no real building taking place and the devil can come in and ravage the whole thing, rip the church to pieces and tear it into small ineffective pieces. He can even bring certain you know, sins into the church to bring them into condemnation and the whole thing's just a mess rather than the glory that it should be. Now, the only thing that terrifies these four great horns is seeing the craftsmen come. And you can understand, if that's true, and it is, you can understand why the devil will do his utmost not to let these ministries come into function because he knows that's the end of his ability to rule wrongly with his four kings. Because these craftsmen have the power to cast them out of the nations. What a tremendous phrase. And if you think of the United States of America for a moment, I think of some of the deeply ingrained strongholds of demonic principality and power that have been here for centuries. And no one's been able to cast them out. But the craftsmen can. You think of Europe where some of you come. Think of some of the deeply ingrained. You go back to centuries of history and you can work it right back to those, those the early days of the church and the demonic powers that came in to confuse and misdirect the church or Africa where deeply, deeply entrenched demonic powers have never been removed. They've been there for centuries. And they oppose the building of the kingdom of God and they oppose the coming of the rule of God by the fact that no one has removed them. And my passion is to see those craftsmen raised up, properly directed, because they're the only thing, according to my Bible, which can terrify those principalities and cast them out. And they have the power to cast them out of the nation. Amen? Do you understand that? So this is what we're talking about. These are the four craftsmen. They have power to terrorize the strong demonic horns and they have, and they, they have power over these strong, strong horns to cast them out. Okay, come over to page 27. So the apostle, as, as we saw yesterday, the ideal apostle, He's able to function in all the Ephesian four ministries. He's, he can be a prophet. He can be an evangelist. He can be a pastor. He can be a teacher. He knows all these great skills, but, you, but most of the time he, he's training others to develop those skills to their full potential. And then he di directs them and puts them to work. And then he oversees them to make sure that there's a proper building strategy where they're all working together to build the glorious kingdom of the living God. Can you see the picture? So here are the qualities. I'm talking about the Ephesians 4.11 ministries or as some call them the five-fold ministries. Between them, they have all the skills necessary to build the complete spiritual city of heavenly Jerusalem. I was very tempted but I was able to resist it not to go into chapter 2 because in chapter 2 we get the picture of what heavenly Jerusalem should look like. We're going to look at that briefly tomorrow morning. 
But it's such an important revelation that I'm going to do a mini conference, which is already, I think, advertised, where I'm going to just give everybody an understanding of what this heavenly Jerusalem is, because that's what we have to build. I can't give you more than a taste of it, but, but they go to a plan, which is to build that spiritual Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem, over a physical city, with all the power of that heavenly city bearing down upon the physical city. And when that happens, the environment over the city changes from hell to heaven. Now, when, and, I, and this is really what revival is. This is really when a whole community suddenly are aware of God and of their sin and cry out for mercy and in multitudes they run to the Saviour. Something's happened in the heavenlies. I'm sure you've read the history of some earlier revivals and I tell you what God is planning for us in the end of the age is, is greater than any of these things. We're promised that the latter rain will be heavier and more glorious than the former rain. I've seen it, I've experienced it, I know what, I've read lots of books about it all my life. I've read and fe feasted on every story of every revival and I've learned the principles. And the principle is if you pray and if God comes, you've got a revival. <laughs> There's been lots of books written on all kinds of I've read some books on, on the, the house church movement across the whole world and this guy spent hundreds of hours and hours thousands of hours traveling to every place to find out why they were successful and the conclusion came was that if you pray it works and if you don't pray it doesn't work that's basically his conclusion you can have a lousy house group leader that prays and you'll have a successful house group you can have a house group leader with a very successful methodology but without prayer it won't work so the bottom line is prayer. It really is. The bottom line is prayer. The bottom line is prayer. Okay. Between them, they have all the skills necessary to build the complete spiritual city of heavenly Jerusalem in the heavens over their physical city or community. Number two, they are the New Testament equivalent of David's captains of thousands. Remember I mentioned this and actually we need to go back to Moses in Exodus chapter 18 when Moses was advised by his father-in-law Jethro, empowered by the Spirit of God, to organise a proper governmental structure over the two million, almost three million people he was leading. You need captains of thousands, you need captains of hundreds, you need captains of fifties, you need captains of tens. They all, and then right through the rest of the history of Israel, when they were doing it right, these particular ministries re-emerged. Re David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds. And he, and he built his whole governmental structure of this great picture of the kingdom which he set up for us all those thousands of years ago which was a type and a shadow of, day of, of the kingdom of Jesus the, the governmental structure was captains of thousands, hundreds fifties and tens, they, they equate roughly the captains of thousands are the Ephesian 4, 11 ministries and they have the ability to lead and direct thousands, that's why they're called captains of thousands captains of hundreds and always in the Bible don't blame me for this it talks in numbers about the men and adds the women and children afterwards so a captain of a hundred will be looking after something like 400 people with women and children he's if you like he's the the the, the pastor of a local church as we would call it today 400 people captain of 50 200 people 
captain of 10, well, that's up to 20, 30, 40 people in a house group. So we've got all these different levels of leadership right there from the beginning in the days of Moses. And God has never changed his plan. But these are the captains of thousands. And here are their skills. Let's move on. Number three, they attract leaders to themselves. And here's the great skill which marks out an Ephesians 4.11 ministry. They are able to detect leadership skills and they know how to develop them, train them and put them to work. Now that's the heart of an Ephesians 4.11 ministry. He sees a need and his response is, where can I find someone to train and meet that need? Now if you are a, 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 a a different capacity leader, then and if you're a captain of, of, of 50, you will go and be the answer to the need. But captains of thousands, they realize that they must find other people to do what they see needs to be done. And they will not entangle themselves in the detail. They are good delegators, but even better than that, they can see leadership ability. They can sort of sniff it out. They attract the people. And then having attracted them, they can train them, teach them, and then put them to work and then continue to oversee them so that they're doing the work while he's just rejoicing in what they're doing. And if you learn those skills, then you can handle large numbers of people without having a breakdown. Amen? That's a great ability. That's the thing that marks an Ephesians 4.11 ministry out there, is their ability to detect leadership, then know how to develop them, train them and put them to work. Number four, a true Ephesians 4.11 ministry brings the body to function in the area of their particular gift. As it says in Ephesians 4.12, they equip the saints for the work of ministry. So a good Ephesians 4.11 pastor has got a lot of people functioning in pastoring and he can stay home and watch football. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> That's going too far. But, but he, he's been able to produce a pastoral passion in the church. And there's the next few notes, you'll just look at them. Uh, an Ephesians 4 prophet does not just prophesy, they detect the prophet gift prophetic gift in others, develop that gift and put it to work to produce a prophesying community. Ephesians 4, 11 evangelists do not just hold evangelistic meetings. In the same way, they will detect the evangelistic gift in others, develop that gift, put it to work and produce an evangelizing church. Amen? God doesn't just want an evangelist, he wants an evangelizing church. He wants everybody to be out in the harvest field, but the evangelist can teach, train, and, and oversee the evangelistic activity of the thing. And I'm, I think many of you think, boy, I could do with a few Ephesians 4.11 ministries in my church, amen? You need them. In the same way, a true pastor in the same way, genuine Ephesians toward each and pastors, they detect gifts in others, develop them, train them and put them to work. In, in this way, a true Ephesians 4.11 pastor can care for a church of thousands without any stress because he knows how to detect, develop, train and put to work all the pastoral gifting in the body without having to do it all himself. Now that's the mark of these guys. Number five on page 27. No Ephesians 4 ministry should be a loner on their own. They should work, be working together with other Ephesians 4 ministries and working under the authority and leadership of true apostles. Page 28. 
Not all genuine spiritual gifts operate at the Ephesians 4 level. Not everybody who prophesies, evangelizes, teaches or pastors with a genuine gift is necessarily doing so at this level and therefore is not really an Ephesians 4.11 ministry, although many are erroneously so called. Hello? And I won't go into that, but I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. It, it, these are sort of terms that are used far, far too quickly and you will not normally find a whole group of qualified and able Ephesians 411 ministries in a, just a group of two or three hundred people. That's why you need the body, because maybe you don't have anybody in your community of two or three hundred that knows how to train people for evangelism. But, but Pastor Bill down the road, he's got a guy that's magnificent. Why can't he come and do it for your group as well as for his group? Amen? And here is brother so-and-so, he's got an absolute skill of training people in pastoral care and he's done a great job in his own church, but he's, 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 he's sort of three quarters of the time now because he's so good at his job, he's got nothing to do. Or send him around the churches in the city and do the same thing in every church and then they can start to bring a whole church to a whole new ability to pastor the people. Can you hear what I'm saying? And so if we work together as a city church and recognize the true highly developed and very capable Ephesians 4.11 ministries and they're now working across the city rather than just doing their own little local thing it enriches the whole body of Christ and they are much more fulfilled can you hear what I'm saying can we ever get there well remember what I said about the Irishman <laughs> if I were you I wouldn't start from here But I'm believing God for a miracle. I'm believing God for a miracle in San Antonio. What about your city? I believe we're going to get there. I believe this is actually going to happen. It's happening slightly, but it's going to happen a lot more. Right, that's, let's just finish this then. Like the apostles, Ephesians 4.11 ministries are, can only be appointed directly by Jesus. He calls them, sets them in the church as he wills. They cannot appoint themselves and they cannot just be appointed by men. Now, here's, here's a summary of these kind of people. Ephesians 4 ministries think vision, strategy, principles, concepts, and doctrine. They can't really be bothered with Mary's birthday and the fact that Jane has just had a new baby. So don't blame them for that. It's not that they're hard-hearted, but their, their vision and their mind is on the bigger, wider thing all the time. And it's hard for them to jerk back into the detail, and they'd rather leave those sort of things to someone else. For other people that God's raised up, who will be the captains of tens and the captains of fifty, this is their passion. They love to be at every you know, shower and every christening, and they love to be at all these things. Because and, and they love to be. They have to know everybody. If they don't, they feel absolutely deprived. And we've all got our role. We've all got our function. And God isn't stupid. I'm sure you agree with me on that. And for every captain of a thousand, he has to create a hundred captains of tens or otherwise the thing's in balance. Now, you don't get your reward in heaven for the gift that God put upon you. You get your reward in heaven for how faithful you were with that gift. If the size of the gift is great, the expectation is great. If the size of the gift is small, then the expectation is less. But God does expect everybody in every case to use the gift that God's given them to the full. If they do, they cannot be more successful. 
If I'm created by God to be a captain of 10, and I do that with all my might, I will get the same reward as a, a, someone who's called to be an apostle and does that with all his might. In other words, it's the measure of my faithfulness, not the measure of my gift, which God judges me by. And when we see that, it stops all this ridiculous competition and it stops people trying to be what they're not. In the secular world, I, one of the principles I learned rather cynically when I was doing some business management studies was that, that they have what they call the Peter Principle, where everybody is promoted to their level of incompetence. And then you try the rest of your life to hold down a job that's too big for you. And if you say, excuse me, boss, I think I've been over-promoted. If I went down a couple of steps, I was really successful there. But at this level, I'm struggling because it's too big for me. If you said that, you'll be fired for lack of ambition. But not in the church. And it's, we need to get into the right place that God's appointed for us. Amen? Because our passion is the kingdom, not our personal self-advancement. If I'm created to be one of those wonderful captains of tens, and I do that with all my might, I tell you, I cannot, cannot have a greater reward than God said, well done, my faithful servant. You did exactly and all that I called you to do. You get the same reward as an apostle who's known in many nations and is on television, and he's been faithful with the gift I gave him. But when you get to eternity, you're judged equally and get the same reward. Amen? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Yes. I believe that. Okay, now we're going to move on to the next section, which is elders. Elders and their function. I've got pages of it. It's very detailed, and it almost stands by itself. But let me just spend a little bit of time on that. In many church traditions, the three different types of biblical leadership, which are, of course, Ephesians 4, 11 ministries, including the apostle, elders and deacons. There's such confusion that the average church leadership board is usually a mixture of all three without them being properly identified. And so you get sort of names like um, a board of deacons. Well, let me say this, there should never be a board of deacons. There should only be one government in a, in a church and that's the, that's the plurality of elders with a clear head over that plurality of elders. Deacons don't need a board, they just need to be a servant to the government of the church, which are the eldership, or a servant to the apostles of an apostolic team. And they are just joined, if you like, to one particular man or woman, and they serve them in their area of, of, of expertise. And they don't need to have a board of elders, a board of deacons. We only need to have government of elders. Is that okay? So we've got these names, a board of deacons, an elder board, or just elders, or a board of trustees, which is even worse, or something similar. But we've got to get back to the biblical pattern. We have apostolic fatherhood, either resident or frequently visiting. We have Ephesians 4 ministry giftings, either resident or coming on a regular basis to bring us the benefit of their gift. But in the local community of believers, we have have a group of elders, a plurality of elders, and one of those elders is, is clearly identifiable as the man or woman, normally the man, I'll deal with that in a moment, that has the headship. But you'll find that in the New Testament there are three words that are used to describe the same person. You find these three words coming together in Acts chapter 20, and you find it again in 1 Peter 5. The first word is the word presbyteros, and of course we get our word presbytery from that. 
And it means literally someone mature in years or experience. Now that's a relative thing. Like when we were seeing a powerful move of God in India out of raw Hinduism, someone who'd been in Christ for two years was mature. And it wasn't inappropriate in that setting to appoint elders that were two or three years old in Christ because the rest of the people coming in had just been converted. The requirement is they must be in front of the people. They must be an example to the people. They can legitimately say, follow me as I follow Christ and I'm further down the road than you are. They've got to be mature but that can be a relative term. But if you come to a, 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 a place where there's been Christianity for decades or centuries, then the requirements are going to be different because they've got to be so much more mature to really be an example and ahead of the people. Hear what I'm saying? So the first thing is that they are mature in years and in experience. So I'm not putting any definite line on that. The second word is the word episkopos, which is sometimes translated bishop, sometimes translated overseer. And the word literally means someone who has an overview. It, now, the word overseer is unfortunately not a good translation because we immediately go into the, into the industrial world where an overseer is someone in charge of people. Now, the emphasis on the Greek word is, is, is having a vision that looks all round to see what's going on. In other words, they are observing the condition of the people. Or as it says in Proverbs, it says a good shepherd knows the condition of all his sheep. So someone who has got the true spirit of overseeing will notice the condition of everybody when they come together. Oh, look, Sister Jane, she looks a bit unhappy this morning. Let's go and find out what the problem is. Or, or where's Bill? He's not here this week. There's something, I better call him to find out what's wrong. In other words, they've got this watchful eye over the whole flock. Or if, if it was a shepherd, he notices that one sheep is limping. That sheep's limping, there's something wrong there. So he's, he's, if you like, he's overseeing in the literal sense of overlooking. Not, I'm overseeing in the sense of being in charge. That's not implicit in the word. Have you got the idea? But he notices things, notices people, sees where they are, sees what their condition is. And then the second uh, step is the third word. The third word is poimain, which is to feed or to tend usually translated shepherd or, 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 or shepherding the flock. And that is you go up to someone and you personally meet their need. Now, all these three words are used to describe the same person. And it describes, if you like, the qualities that God's looking for in those who have oversight of his flock. They've got to be people who lovingly watch and notice the condition of everybody. Secondly, they've got to be the kind of people that can again go to an individual and say, what's the trouble? What's, what's the problem? And they can meet that need. They can feed them or tend them. And they are mature in years and experience so that they can be legitimately in front of the flock because they are in front of the flock. Have you got the picture? Let's move on. I've just made a list on page 29 of, of the, if you like, the, the qualities of Elva. The word is always in the plural, almost without exception, except when it's describing the function. You never find a church anywhere that has an elder. It always has elders. 
And you'll find that in a local church like the church at Philippi, Paul writes to the elders or the overseers and to the deacons. And notice he doesn't refer to apostles and he doesn't refer to Ephesians 4.11 ministries because probably the church at Philippi didn't have any. But they weren't far away from Thessalonica and they were part of a network of churches moved from out from Thessalonica and they received the apostolic input, they received the Ephesians 4.11 input from those traveling ministries which moved around from that base. But he says to the church in Philippi, I write to the bishops, the overseers, the elders, and the deacons, because that was the only two levels of government which were to be found in that particular local church. But they drew upon the Ephesians 4.11 resources of the region rather than having it in their own little community. Can you hear what I'm saying? Okay. Now here's the list of them. They have concern for the church locally. They think about the people and they long to bring them to maturity. They exercise rule or government over the lives of the people. They can be full-time or part-time. They are under the headship of a lead elder or pastor in a local church or under an Ephesian 4 pastor in a city church and or apostles. The main gift of an elder is government or management. He is to rule or manage the people in the same way that a father rules or manages a natural family. That's why it says that if he can't manage his own family, how on earth can he be an elder in the church? If your own family is in a mess when you've got three or four children of your own, how can you look after 100 or 200 people? It's ridiculous. So his ability to father and manage a family is one of his main requirements. Not all elders are pastoral in gifting, though the majority are. Apart from the character requirements, these three things are essential in an elder. They have the ability to govern or manage. They have the ability to uphold sound doctrine and to rebuke error. This is from Titus. The ability to counsel and teach people scripturally, not necessarily as a preacher. In other words, they must be people that know the word. And when Sister So-and-So comes to me with her problem, I don't give her the latest psychiatric advice. I tell her what the Word says. Now, to do that, I have to know the Word. And I think pretty well anybody that comes to me with anything of any kind of problem, I immediately think of three or four scriptures that are right on target for their need because I'm soaked in the Word. Now, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily able to stand up and preach a message, although some of them, of course, can do that. It means you can bring the word to bear on the needs of the lives of the people over whom you have oversight. You bring them to the bar of the word. You don't give them your best bit of of personal advice. And where necessary, you can detect error and false doctrine and you bring correction and don't allow it to, to diffuse into the church. His sister science, I've got these crazy tapes about some nutty prophetic guy and she's passing them all around the church and confusing people. You go and deal with it. You don't allow all that kind of stuff to come in. You're not, you're not trying to regulate them from anything that's good from every source, but you're careful not to allow error and false doctrine to come in. Understand what I'm saying? So there's that caring oversight. Now, the lead elder, or we can call him the pastor, the senior pastor, the set man, the shepherd, I don't, I'm not arguing about titles, but recognizing that from that plurality of elders, one will have clear headship because it's a principle of the kingdom. I taught that yesterday. I'm not going to go over it again today. Everything in the kingdom has headship. 
And he's probably described in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, where it says, he that labors in the word and teaching is worthy of double honor. And obviously, their lead man must be skilled and gifted in the public preaching of the word. But not every elder, but certainly the lead elder, must be able to preach in a way that brings life into people through preaching the word. Now this elder, this leader, his style is consultative with clear headship. He doesn't make unilateral decisions alone, but he carries the vision and burden of the church. He's the main initiator of the vision and brings the final judgments after discussion. He's the father of the local family. He's not the same as an Ephesian 4 pastor, but will often grow into one. Have you got the picture there? Now come to page 30. These are just my personal observations. I can't give you a scripture to prove any of them. But after 40-something years of dealing with many churches, these are some of the things which I've learned by experience. First of all, in every eldership, there's a pecking order. Although you may have five, six, eight, even 10 elders, some are much more mature and much more able than others. Some are just coming on and some have been there for quite a while. It's good to recognize the pecking order without trying to overdefine it. And the root is humility. If we esteem another one higher than myself, then I'm going to receive from him that this guy's got more, uh, more right and more wisdom to speak into this situation and I, am, and I will hold back. I think the principles of, of the culture of uh, certainly India and Africa and the Bible is that we let the older folks speak first. And I mean, when I say, I mean, the more mature people, the more wise people, just let them have a bit more say, let them have more authority without having to, to draw a set of rules up. You understand what I'm saying? And if we recognize the pecking order, the eldership works much better. If I've just recently come to be an elder, I think, well, I'm going to just learn from these guys because they've been at it for a decade or two and they can teach me a lot. And that humility will allow you to be brought to maturity by the wisdom that they have. Do you understand what I'm saying? But don't try and have rules and regulations because that will box the thing into some kind of rigid system. But let, just let the heart be right. Secondly, the yoke fellow elders. You will find in most churches, which is what I've found over many, many years, that there's one or two people that they don't, you see, an elder can take some of the load off of the pastor and relieve him from certain responsibilities. And perhaps I ought to say this also, that in an eldership you need speciality. You need one guy, maybe, who's responsible for all the finances. Someone else who's responsible for all the children's work, the youth work, etc. Someone else who's concerned particularly with the pastoral care of all the people. Someone who's concerned about evangelism. Someone who's concerned about all the new people that have come, that they're properly felt followed up. Someone who cares for the sick and makes sure everybody's visited in the hospitals. And so you, you divide the responsibilities into definite compartments of responsibility. So the ball is not dropped because no one quite knows who's got the responsibility for it. Now that's just common sense, organization, but you need that organization. Can you hear what I'm saying? Now you'll find that there's one or two people, because if, if you've ever led a church, if you've ever built a church, if you've got two, three, four hundred, or maybe many more hundreds, thousands of people leaning on you as the lead man, I tell you, there's a tremendous responsibility which you carry. And while certain men can lift the work, they don't actually take on the responsibility. It's hard to put into words, but I think you know what I'm talking about. 
but there are just one or two guys who feel the way you feel. They feel the burden and they're there with you in the early morning to pray about the church. You feel this guy isn't just helping me with the load, he's carrying the burden. And God will usually give two or three such people to the lead man, like David, although he had 30 mighty men, there were three that were particularly close to him. Although Jesus had 12 apostles, there were three that were particularly close to him. Amen? And you'll find that there are two or three in that group of elders and leaders who they just carry the burden like you do. And they are, they're, they're just totally your spiritual sons. They're totally involved with you in everything you think, feel, and agonizing over. And it's not wrong to have a particular relationship with them. It's not wrong even to go away sometimes and just the three of you get before God and pray about some critical decision that's involving the church. And that needs to be recognized. But I tell you, it's a tough, it's a tough, tough road if you're on your own, brother. But if there's two or three of you that are, that are what I call these are the yoke fellow elders, they carry the burden with you. It makes your job as the leader so much easier and so much more uh, bearable. Amen? Well, let's move on to the next one. Is this practically useful for you? Next, page 31. Elders are appointed by apostles. Go through the New Testament. You'll find that Paul, Timothy, and Titus are all actually doing or being exhorted to appoint elders. I'm not going to go through all the scriptures. And so there is a place where if you've got a proper relationship with an apostle, and you should have, when it comes to appointing elders, you need his wisdom and his input before you make the decision. That avoids some very tragic mistakes being made. Most churches, they don't do that. And for that reason, they often make mistakes and get themselves into all kinds of messes. And half the time, I'm being called into a church too late when they've already made the wrong decisions and now you're trying to unravel the mess. So I wish you'd called me two years ago and I could have saved you from this terrible misery and agony that you're now in. Now, it's not to interfere and usually it's pretty obvious who is rightfully to be appointed as an elder. I've given a list here of 23 things which I look for in an elder. And I've learned to my cost, if I ignore any one of them, well, he's a wonderful brother, but he hasn't got his finances in order. That's one thing, I made that mistake. Well, he's in debt and he doesn't, well, I'll deal with that, but he's just such a great elder. He's, I mean, the, the young people think he's fantastic and he's got such a public ministry. And I, I allow myself to ignore that disqualifying thing. I always regret it later. And I realize that if the guy's still got a problem, there's something, it's a bigger problem than just a little something that needs to be dealt with. And obviously, let's just go through the list very quickly. I, I have to ask these questions. Does the apostolic oversight sense that they are appointed by the Holy Spirit? In other words, do they have a clear call themselves? Are the people already recognizing them? All you're really doing is, is recognizing what's already obvious. If you are doing it right, when you say to the people, well, we've just been praying and looking to God for two more new elders, and we're happy to say that we really feel now the Lord's chosen so and so and so, so the people say, well, it's about time. It's been obvious to us for months. We wonder why you guys weren't getting on with the job. In other words, it's pretty obvious to the people. Are the people already going to them? And do they already recognize them? Five, are they ahead of where the people are? And are they a real example to be followed? Six, 
Do they have the necessary character requirements, which are listed very carefully in 1 Timothy 3 and also in Titus? Seven, can they teach well and can they refute error? Eight, can they rule as a father or mother in the church and has this been proven in their family? Little aside here, unmarried men or women can become elders, but their skills in fathering or mothering the flock have to have been demonstrated. Do you hear what I'm saying here? You may have a single woman, say, who's in her 30s or 40s, and she's a great mum to the flock, but never, ever had, never been married, never had her own children, but she's a fantastic mother. You can find the same with certain men. So it's not the technical marriage that we're looking for. It's, it's whether the, the ability to father or mother has already been well developed in them. If it is, then you can point them, even though they're single. Are they committed to and compatible with the leader? Do they understand headship and will they serve the head without usurping? I could spend an hour on each one of these, but I think they're pretty clear, aren't they? 11, are they compatible with the rest of the eldership? You see, I've seen this happen. You've got a beautiful eldership working and you put one guy on that you shouldn't put on and he wrecks the whole thing because he's arguing and fighting about things and he's just a pain in the neck. I wish we'd never had this guy on. It's wrecked the whole thing. So you've got to look at compatibility with the rest of the people. All right, let's move on. 12, are they in it for the long haul? If Bill's going to leave and go somewhere else in two months' time, there's no point in having him as an elder. If he's just here temporarily and he's just looking for the next opportunity in his career or in his church ambitions, then he's not going to be the sort of guy that you need as an elder in your church. Is that clear? I'm not saying he's committed to you for life because God may move him on, but he's got to have this attitude, I'm here as far as I know in the will of God for the long haul. Are they self-motivated and full of zeal? If they don't turn up in time for anything and they're lazy, then they're no good to you. Let them set an example. I expect, if I, when I was leading churches, I was always there on time. I was there, always there as, as, a, as an example of punctuality. I expected the elders to be the same. When we have prayer meetings, I expected them to be there, passionately involved with me. And so that leads me to the next question. Do they have, are they men or women of prayer? Are they full of faith? I could spend an hour on that, but I won't. Do they have a proven, impeccable financial integrity? Are their finances in order? Are they free from debt? And are they released in joyful, faith-filled personal giving? Because if you've got a whole load of people on, the elderly are full of unbelief and are tight like Scrooges with money, you're never going to see the blessing of God upon the whole church. Amen? They've got to be examples in all these things. Let's move on to the next page. Do they recognise that they must live in open, transparent relationship with the leader and the rest of the team? In other words, they're not hiding behind a mask. You, we get into each other's homes. We're friends. We sit and do things together. We know each other intimately. That's the only way that this sort of thing can work. I made the mistake once in early years of my ministry. This, this guy, um, I came to take over a church that already had four elders. And while I was praying one day, and God gave me a vision. And the vision was of each, each person was like a caricature. But one of these persons was, was like a, one of these sort of Middle East dancers all covered in veils and he said the name is mystery and I realised that although I'd been around for 
two years. I didn't know this guy. There was no way he let you inside to get in his private life. Although he had tremendous organizing skills and was a very able and zealous in the realm of evangelism. And then after making the mistake of letting him continue as an elder, in a short space of time, he broke away, took a whole company of people with him because he was, he was mystery. And I said, I will never ever work with anybody or point anybody that I don't know and they don't know me. They've got to see me at my worst and still love me. <laughs> They've got to, you've got to get over the shock that Alan Vincent has got his weak areas and that they still love him and they say, well, never, never mind. We know God's appointed him and we know he's a leader that we can work with and that we can follow. And I've got to know them. Amen? You've got to, you see, Jesus would not have privacy among the twelve. He didn't wash Peter's feet in private. He did it before the other guys. He didn't do it publicly, but in that arena of the, the relationships of that team, there had to be transparency. And he said, you guys have got to wash one another's feet. And what we did in all the churches that I've ever planted was that, that three times a year, we would go away for what we called our elder away days. We would just go to some uh, quiet place, um, some re retreat place. It, it wasn't with other people. We'd just be on our own. We wasn't a business agenda. We just spent time in each other's presence. We just spent time in prayer, before the Lord, reading the Word. And if there was any hint of a, a strange relationship between anybody, it came out and we dealt with it. We said, look, Jack, if you just notice that you don't seem to be getting on too well with Fred right now, what's the problem? And we wouldn't let them go until the thing was resolved. And it kept us walking in the light, kept us in relationship. And we never had a defection from any of those guys because we, we, we loved each other and we, we flowed together in, in a, a wonderful team unity. Okay? Number 18, are they able to receive correction? Good question. Or are they going to sulk and go somewhere else if you try and correct them? Are they giving attention to themselves and is there evidence of continual growth and progress that's visible to all? That's what Paul said. Timothy, Timothy, you first of all concentrate on yourself. You've got to make sure that you have a healthy spiritual life where you and God are getting to know each other better and better. You're more in the Word, you're more in God and, and you're obviously growing in maturity and everybody can see it. Now, don't so give yourself to the work that you neglect yourself. That's what is the advice of Scripture again and again. Amen? Okay, let's move on. Are they pioneers or settlers? You understand what I mean by that? Are they complacent with what they've got or are they pushing on to fulfill the vision of God? 21, have they time and commitment to do the job? I've had some guys that are fantastic in every way, but they've got such a demanding secular job that they can't give their time to it. And obviously it's not going to work if they can't give their time to it. And so one regretfully says, well, you're, I mean, Jim, you're just the guy, but man, you're already doing 70 hours a week in your, in your job and you're hardly ever at any of, you couldn't even come to the meetings and because you're so taken up with your career, um, there's no way this is gonna work. And you have to regretfully decide that such a person is not free to become an elder, although he qualifies in every other way. 22, what's the condition of their marriage? 
because a husband and a wife are one flesh and her condition is as important as his condition or vice versa. If you've got a great mother in the church that you want to appoint to eldership and her husband's a flake or nowhere, then that will necessarily disqualify her. Amen? If he's on drugs, then... And I face these things in reality. I'm not teaching you theory here. First, number 23, are they an example in all these respects for others to follow? One final point, when an Ephesians 4.11 ministry is resident in a, in a local church community and has involved functional relationship with the people and especially the leadership, then he can also function, I'm going to change the wording slightly, not take the title of, I'd rather put, he, he may function in the role of an elder as well as functioning in his ministry gift. Some apostles can be city elders at the same time, and you've got examples in Scripture of Peter and John. They were elders, and at the same time, they were mighty apostles. However, Ephesians 4 ministries that do not have this hands-on relationship with any community, any local church, or even a city church, will not carry this title and, and may not be functioning elders anywhere. Is that okay? Now we come to the question, can women be elders? Well, I've dealt with most of that when I talked about women apostles. But basically, you do find the same word, presbutis or presbyteras, in the Greek manuscript. But it's always translated by, in the English Bible, with the word older women, so you wouldn't know. But if you were to literally, literally translate the Greek, you would say lady elders. But we can't do that, so we put um, older women. And... I won't go through, through it all again. I talked about this yesterday. But these women can have a powerful motherly function in the church, just like in home. Because in the home, it's father and mother together. In the church, it should be the same thing. On the other hand, in the two major biblical passages on the requirements of elders or overseers in Timothy and Titus, the scripture is, is clearly talking about men in particular and calling them to a role of fatherhood. Women usually cannot effectively fulfill the role of fathers, but the church badly needs mothers as well as fathers. The two roles are not the same and should not be confused. Church life is greatly enriched when some wise, mature, older women become part of the eldership and their advice and counsel I found absolutely invaluable. If they become part of the eldership and function as mothering elders with governmental authority, a church just like a family generally functions more naturally with a clear father head as the ultimate pastoral leader. And that's my experience, and I believe that there's that emphasis in Scripture. However, I have seen the exception. You see it in the natural, in the family, you see it in the church. Sometimes in a particular situation, just as in the natural family, a local church may lose its spiritual father for a number of tragic reasons. And there's no obvious male successor. Don't put some young guy who's absolutely immature in charge of the church because he's a man. Hello. You may have this fantastic mothering elder who's just, the, she's been doing a tremendous job and everybody looks to her anyway. And, and, and she then very, very successfully takes over the leadership role. I've seen that happen quite a few times. Sometimes it's been the tragic immorality of the man that's gone off, married his secretary, run off to another. Now, now, here's this devastated wife with three natural children and maybe a spiritual family of 300, and I've seen them pick up the whole burden and make a tremendous success of it. Now, don't tell me that's not God. I, I'm not obviously going to quote places and situations, but I could. 
And I've got to learn that I don't live by a rule book, I live by the Spirit of God. And obviously when a father is tragically lost in a natural family, a mother may have to do her best to be father and mother and God will give her great grace to do it. It's not ideal, but don't make things harder for her by criticizing her for doing what she's doing. And I've seen that in a church situation. I've seen, you know, a, a, a wonderful giant of a spiritual mother take over the church and, and, and bring the church successfully through the, the tragedy of what's happened and then also uh, bring her own children up straight and on fire for Jesus. And I tell you, I'm just filled with admiration for this. There's an amazing way how the Spirit of God can minister to fatherless children his fatherhood without there being a natural father channel for it to flow through. And I've seen it happen, and I've seen it happen with incredible success. And it's hard enough for such a woman without us adding the extra burden of our disapproval and criticism. Usually when that crisis is over, this pastoring mother, when the, and I've seen this happen too, after maybe three years, five years, even 10 years, someone grows up to be an incredible, powerful, effective spiritual father in the church. She just joyfully hands it back to him and then reverts back to being the mother alongside him. And that's been a wonderful transition. So while I don't agree that it's the norm, and I do not agree with the thing, well, it doesn't matter whether it's a man or a woman, I said, no, the church is, is run on fatherhood and motherhood working together the same way it is in the natural. As it is in the natural, the father has the, the, the servant final authority, but he's a servant. He's, he's got all the qualities of the servant Christ in his fatherhood. You understand what I'm saying? He's not a dictator, and he's not saying you know, men are better than women. No, they're just different roles. Women are better than men in many respects, and thank God they come alongside to help us in our incompetence. Amen? And it's, it's partnership, but the final, final authority is normally best left in the hands of men, but there are exceptions which we, we must learn to recognize and give them our love and our support when we realize and see that this is really of God. Sometimes when women go into certain situations, the devil regards them as despicable and doesn't even bother to attack them. And I've seen women go into tough, tough situations in evangelism and have a church of 500 before the devil wakes up to realize what's happened. It'd have been a man, he would have organized that the guy gets killed. So she, they can sneak in as the secret agent. I could tell you stories of that as well. So let's just be careful. Uh, I hope I've been able to strike what I believe to be the right biblical balance and you can hear what I'm saying. Amen? And finally, elders can only continue as long as they function. Eldership is not an office, it's a function. Once the function ceases for any reason, then the reality of this situation needs to be recognized and the elder should step down from the role because he's no longer doing it. After all, I have no right to call myself an electrician if I stop doing electrical work. Amen? I have no right to call myself an elder if I'm not eldering. And so once the function ceases, then there's no point in having an empty title of a role that you're not doing. And I've learned, therefore, that I no longer agree with elders being appointed for life. I believe in something like a, a, a checkup once every two years to see whether the reasons for which they were appointed as an elder are still valid today. They might have changed them, their job and got a job that's squeezing the life out and they've got no time for it. 
Something could have happened in their marriage where they need to step down in order to save their marriage. They, haven't, they, they can't do the two things at the same time. In any way, they're not an example. Or they could simply just have backslidden. Or thirdly, they could be part of a, a young church that's going on with God, but this person comes on in the early days, was legitimately an elder, but now the church has gone, gone way past them and they are behind the church rather than in front of it. If they are, then they can no longer lead. So for various reasons, it may be necessary to say, well, look, brother, we have to face the reality of the fact that, that you don't any longer fulfill the requirements of an elder. And I think it's wiser for you and better for the church if you just step back and allow, you know, no longer try to, to have a title which doesn't express your true function. So for that reason, I don't agree with elders being elders for life. They can elder or they can be elders as long as they're elder. Amen? Come over the page to deacons. Um, these people work under the government of elders in Ephesians 4 ministries. They do not have governmental authority in the church. They have authority over the task which God's called them to. They serve elders in the local church. They serve apostles on an apostolic team. They think task and how to achieve it. They can be part-time or full-time, male or female. And I give a whole list of things that they can function in. Let's go to the summary and then we're going to have the break. The focus of the Ephesians 4 ministry is the wider work of the kingdom. Okay? And they therefore cannot and should not be bogged down with the details of some local situation. The focus of elders is the people of God and their growth to maturity. And they, their, their job is to oversee the life and function of a local community within the church and bring it to functioning maturity. The focus of deacons is practical tasks and doing them with the excellence of the kingdom. If we get all these three things in the right places, then we've got a system that works and these strong horn devil things can be destroyed by such a church. Amen? Well, let's have a break now. Does, does Natalie got to say anything? Yes, she's running. Okay.